Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Now, I know given all that's happening with COVID and all that's going on, it may be hard to find the happy this Monday, but we've got to try, right? Thanks for choosing to listen again this week, and welcome to any new listeners out there joining me for the first time. You're listening, and maybe even subscribing means a lot, so I appreciate that. And if you're so inclined, if you like what you hear, uh, you know, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts goes a long way. I hate to ask, but apparently that's how this whole podcast thing works in terms of trying to grow the listening audience and create awareness around the podcast. The ratings apparently are everything, so I'd really appreciate that, only if you are so inclined, of course. Uh, Another good weekend, uh, though things are turning a bit wet here and rainy here in Vancouver, which is on par for November. One of the myths about this part of North America is that, and I'll include Seattle and Portland, Uh, in this characterization, is that it rains all the time, which is not true. Now, having said that, in November, it rains all the time. So you have to get used to that uh, when you live in this part of the world. Winters are wet. Rest of the year, especially the summer, can actually be pretty beautiful, but it's pretty rainy right now. So as wet as it is, however, we do find an ounce of good news in thinking you don't have to shovel rain. So we like that part of it. Uh, Monday, of course, brings a fantasy football update for you as well. Uh, You didn't ask, but I'm telling you anyway. (laughs) No Monday night players for me and my opponent, so another win is secured. I was a little worried. My quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, was on a bye this week, so a little worried about whether or not I was going to be able to pull through. But I picked up uh, Tua Tagovailoa from uh, Miami, and he served as a competent replacement for sure. So we're now up to 7-3, and three, and it looks like if everything plays out the way it should, or it looks like it will, uh, we're going to have a four-way tie for first place uh, in our league. So things are heating up. Um, I'm excited for Tua. Uh, some of you know, most of you don't, uh, know that I'm a Miami Dolphins fan. Now, I'm a Seahawks fan first and foremost, but Miami is my number two team. So why Miami? Well, first, growing up, I was always enamored with people who lived anywhere where you could wear shorts and t-shirts in January. I was just naturally drawn to that. But it actually really started when I was 13 years old. I was watching the 1981 playoff game between the Chargers and the Dolphins. There's six seconds left in the half. Miami runs a hook and ladder play to score a touchdown before the half. It was one of the most epic playoff games in NFL history. Now, the Chargers ended up winning... But that Don Strzok to Duriel Harris to Tony Nathan play at the end of the half to score that touchdown solidified my Dolphin fandom. And and then a couple years later, along comes Dan Marino. And it was a good time to be a Dolphins fan. And I've never really wavered from that uh, ever since. The not signing Drew Brees era hurt a little bit, that's for sure. But hey, that's what being a fan is all about, isn't it? Now, as you've heard me say many times, uh, I'm working on the format, the segments, and just trying to find the right balance for the podcast. So as I change things up, I really would appreciate knowing from you what's working, what's not working. I actually have a specific question for you at the end of the podcast that I'm hoping you'll be able to take the time and answer for me, either through the Twitter handle or email. Uh, You know, your feedback will always be welcome and your suggestions and of course, your questions are topics for assessment corner. So the email address, of course, is tomshimmerpod at gmail.com or the Twitter accounts. You can tw- uh, send me a tweet at, uh, at Tom Shimmer. That's my personal Twitter account or at Tom Shimmer Pod is the Twitter account for the show. I'm thrilled to have Katie Martin joining me today uh, for the interview. Katie is the vice president of professional learning at Altitude Learning. She is also the author 
of Learner-Centered Innovation, and that book is going to be our focus today in our conversation. And in Assessment Corner, I'm going to focus on reassessment and how teachers can ensure that the process is not overwhelming. This has been a frequently asked question in many of the Zoom trainings and PD sessions I've been facilitating in the last week and a half or two weeks. So I really want to sort of dig into uh, how we can, uh, you know, make this a more efficient and effective process so that teachers aren't feeling overwhelmed. So I've got some tips for that as well. So that's today's plan. I, I think it's going to be a great episode. Looking forward to it. So let's get to it. My interview with Katie Martin is coming up in a few moments, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with an exploration of change and how you can always find some optimism in what appears to be a thoroughly pessimistic circumstance. In 2007, Thomas Homer Dixon wrote the book The Upside of Down, Catastrophe, Creativity, and the Renewal of Civilization. Homer Dixon made two essential assertions in that book, and the first was rather dire. He submitted at the time that in the early to mid-2000s, we as a global society were creating the conditions for catastrophe, that the great stresses the world was experiencing, and he's referring to things like global warming, population imbalances, socioeconomic divides, those experiences should not be examined in isolation, but rather be seen as converging issues that eventually overlap to increase the risk of breakdown. And of course, only a few years later, we saw the collapse of the global economy and the worst recession the world had seen in almost a century. Homer Dixon says that unlike the past, the consequences of our collective denial at the time would be more severe. Now that said, Homer Dixon's second assertion is that in the face of these dire circumstances, there is an opportunity a positive opportunity for a collective effort to bring about regeneration, renewal, and innovation. That in the face of this down, there is an upside. Now that premise of this opportunity is similar to the one that frames Thomas Friedman's 2016 book called Thank You for Being Late, within which Friedman asserts, and he gets this by way of Will Steffen and a team of climate change experts and researchers at Australian National University, he asserts that we live in the age of accelerations, that there is this convergence of accelerations within Mother Nature, the market, and Moore's Law. So when Friedman refers to Mother Nature, he's talking about climate change. When he refers to the market, he's talking about globalization. And when he refers to Moore's Law, he's generally referring to technology. Now specifically, Moore's Law refers to Intel co-founder Gordon Moore's prediction that first appeared in April of 1965. It was an electronics magazine article where Moore predicted that the speed and the power of microchips would double every one to two years, which, as it turns out, was a correct prediction. So while the situation is accelerating, Friedman asserts that we can overcome these accelerations if we slow down and use our collective time to reimagine our approach to everything, to it all. The acute urgency creates the opportunity for reimagining. There again is an upside to the down. We find this again in ancient Chinese philosophy, the yin and the yang, which is essentially about how 
two seemingly opposing forces or contradictory forces may actually be complementary or interconnected. When we find the positive or the renewal in an otherwise negative situation, we are at least in some ways balancing the yin and the yang. Now look, I'm no expert on ancient Chinese philosophy. Let's get that right. But I know that sometimes when we are at our lowest, we find our way back and then realize that going through that negative is what produced the positive. I think this is actually what people mean when they say everything happens for a reason. Like I, for one, have never taken that expression literally, as if there is some divine reason why really awful stuff is happening to certain people. Like for me, it's never been about passivity or just the idea that you have to absorb one body shot after another. My interpretation of that expression, everything happens for a reason, is about making meaning. A sort of view of, okay, this happened to me. Now, how can I define it in a way that allows me to deal with it, to learn from it, to grow from it, and recover to be better because of it? Like that for me is one of the great wonders of life is that we get to define what experiences mean to us. Like when people refer to really horrific experiences as the best thing that ever happened to me, you know, we can't really understand what they mean, but to them, that's really true. That going through that downside, they found a pathway to renewal. And we're doing this right now with the pandemic, aren't we? Finding the upsides of this down. Like after the shock and awe of the quarantine orders and the spring and the shutdowns and the various measures that were enacted around the world, educators then started having conversations that might have been long overdue in some places. Questions around, you know, what should our priorities be? What evidence is really necessary? How do our instructional practices and assessment practices need to evolve? How do we navigate this remote learning circumstance? And, and are there any long-term benefits that, that we can you know, maintain once the pandemic is over? Now, it's safe to say that many of these conversations either might not have happened at all or would have happened at a much slower pace. Now, I have no doubt we are going to come out of this pandemic with some positives. Not a net positive, right? I understand that. There's... This is a horrific situation that we are dealing with collectively in our society. But some positives nonetheless. So the degree to which it's possible, we need to find some of those small, medium, or even large victories. Which leads me to the point about attention for change. Change is never easy. Change is never smooth. This is especially true under two circumstances. The first is... When you're being asked to change something, you didn't initiate or even desire to change. When you're happy with the status quo and you're being asked to be different, or it's kind of happening all around you, there seems to always be this little extra resistance within us. And two, it's especially true if you are the one leading the change. When you're the one advocating for the new or the different, it never seems to go as fast or as smoothly as you'd hoped. Leading change is risky. With any kind of leadership, and again, it doesn't have to be by title, whether by title or influence, you open yourself up to a level of vulnerability. I mean, even if you have the title, even if you are the principal or the superintendent, 
you still open yourself up to vulnerability and to criticism. And that really is the downside of leading change, isn't it? Criticism and, and ridicule. They can have a devastating effect on not only your change efforts, but the psyche of the person leading the change as well. Ridicule can be directed at either the new idea itself or at you personally. I mean, some will make fun of the new idea as being, for example, you know, naive or freakishly optimistic about what's possible. Now, sometimes it can be a little bit more subtle, but sometimes it's not always that subtle. I mean, I've seen or heard and experienced this in my career many times, especially when leading conversations about reforming assessment and grading practices, right? You get the, oh, good morning, Pollyanna. Isn't it just a wonderful standards-based day in the neighborhood? Those types of comments. <laughs> so ridiculing the idea or worse, ridiculing the person advocating for the change can be devastating to the person and the overall change effort. The criticism can be equally devastating, maybe even worse, as there is no attempt to couch the comments in humor or soften the blow. Here you have a full frontal attack that can come in the form of fear-mongering or personal attacks. They'll say things like, our students won't be ready for university, or it's educators like you who are the downfall of our system. Well, they may not say it exactly like that, but that is the sentiment of what, of what essentially they're saying. I've experienced those things, and as cavalier as we'd all like to pretend we are, you'd have to be a stone not to be affected by that. But of course, there is an upside, right? Well, of course there is. Harvard Business School professor John Cotter, in the 2010 book he wrote with Lauren Whitehead, the book was called Buy-In, Saving Your Good Idea from Getting Shot Down, Cotter asserts that there is one simple truth or positive that allows us to turn these attacks to our advantage by solving what he calls, quote, the single biggest challenge people face when they need to gain buy-in for a good idea, end quote. What is the single biggest challenge that people face? It's attention. In order to make impactful change in any context, you need to have people's attention. And with ridicule and criticism, you have their attention. If people are distracted or complacent or marginalizing the new idea, you really can't make any significant gains. As Cotter says, quote, distracted people will ignore you, end quote. If complacency or marginalization worked, they wouldn't say anything. They would just think to themselves, this too shall pass. When it doesn't pass, a new strategy is needed, right? So they go on the attack. So, as devastating and hurtful and as insensitive as some of our colleagues can be at times, remember that if they ridicule or criticize, you have their attention. My own experience, now, to be clear, this is not a research-validated experience or anything like that. It's just my own anecdotal evidence. My experience has taught me that the greater the intensity of the individual response, the more isolated the individual feels in their position. In other words, if the vast majority are on the side of the resistor, then there is no need for intensity since the will of the majority still stands. But when the vast minority see the writing on the wall, then the intensity escalates as one last-ditch effort to undermine the change most others want. 
find the upside of down. When it comes to change, just know that as the intensity of responses increases, the size of the group resisting is shrinking. Now, it's not that we shouldn't be attentive to those who are in opposition. That's not really the point here. I mean, sometimes those who are opposing a different idea have fresh ideas or a new way of looking at things, and we need to hear those people and we need to understand their point of view. But that's different than going on the attack with ridicule or criticism. So the next time you find yourself on the receiving end of any resistance to what you know is the right course of action, measure the intensity of the response. Take comfort in the fact that you have their attention so you can absolutely find the upside in an otherwise down moment. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Katie Martin. Katie is the Vice President of Professional Learning at Altitude Learning, where she supports schools and districts in their shift toward learner-centered education. Now, before joining Altitude, she served as Director of District Leadership at the Buck Institute of Education. And most of you would be very familiar with the Buck Institute's work around project-based learning. Uh, Katie began her career as a middle school English language arts teacher. She has also served as an instructional coach and led a mentoring program also in her district as well. She is the author of Learner-Centered Innovation, and that book is going to be the foundation for our conversation today. And one thing that really struck me uh, with Katie was Katie believes that if we want to change how students learn, we have to change how educators learn. So I'm really excited about this conversation. So Katie, with that, I want to welcome you to the Tom Schimmer podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. And for listeners, if you haven't read uh, Learner-Centered Innovation yet, I can tell you that I was exactly one chapter into this book and decided to reach out to Katie and say, I have to have you on the podcast. So uh, you know, we made it happen and, and here we are. So Katie, I want to begin today with a question just about your background and your experience. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more specifically what kind of what you started as an English language arts teacher and you, you know, what's the pathway? What's the arc of that story that takes you from being a middle school English language arts teacher to uh, down the pathway of learner centered and innovation and, and, and all that happened to lead you to where you are today? Yeah, great question. Um, some people think it's this master plan, but but truly, like we were talking about before we joined, um, I I wanted to become a teacher because uh, I didn't love school myself, and so I wanted to be a teacher who was able to help students figure out who they were, find their passion, and really see that learning was something that they could do for themselves, not just for a test. And so that truly was all I wanted to do and and still guides me to this day. But as I had the opportunity to um, go to school and learn through amazing educators and mentors that I had, um, in some ways I got asked to be an instructional coach. And I realized that not only did I have a love for teaching students, but I really um, was inspired and excited by working with my colleagues and helping them find their passion and, and really connect with their students. And then I had the opportunity to, we had 20 new teachers coming in every year to our school um, because we were, I was teaching in Hawaii at the time and we had a lot of influx of teachers from the mainland. And I really started getting in, um, excited about supporting new teachers from the very beginning um, and helping them see their practices and develop them before um, more traditional mindsets got ingrained. 
And it was just through, I kept learning and growing every time I had the opportunity to work in these new roles. And, um, and then I was going to school and got my PhD. And so I really um, always wanted to connect research and practice to really support, um, support students and continue to focus on that vision of helping all learners reach their full potential. So all of that being said, that was the first 10 years of my career. And then when we moved back to San Diego with my family, I had the opportunity to work at the University of San Diego and put those all together. Mm -hmm. And that's when you say, learner-centered, really thinking about um, the, the ways that students were learning and helping districts think about their goals and priorities and how we could make that um, just more, more pervasive in our schools that everyone was working that way. So that path, I have just continued to follow the journey and, and learn and grow and connect. Um, but it was really, um, while I was working at the University of San Diego, as you mentioned, George Carlos, I met him and he really encouraged me to blog and write. And that's when I was able to take my ideas that I was learning about and connect them and start sharing them more broadly. And that was a really important um, piece in that journey as well. Yeah, not only uh, a, a sort of an, an exciting set of circumstances and opportunities, but listeners, as you just heard, Katie has lived in some very rough parts of the world, Hawaii, San Diego, um, we are all living vicariously through you, uh, two of my favorite places, of course, and I'm not alone in that. So um, hearing that just, uh, it, it was it was hard enough hearing you live in San Diego, never mind the fact that you worked in Hawaii. So, uh, but, but, but really just thinking about those circumstances and those opportunities, because I often think about, we have always as a profession thought about helping our students reach their potential. I don't, I don't think that's a new concept, but it's the learner centered part, isn't it? That's the part that starts like putting the student versus the teacher uh, being at the center of that experience, which is sort of the newness of what we're focusing on today, isn't it? Um, let's start with now, because obviously right now we are uh, in the midst of a pandemic, which is obviously, uh, you know, everybody knows that. E educators are facing challenges at, at all angles, you know, trying to ensure high quality instruction, uh, safety protocols, the uncertainty of what this school year is going to bring. Uh, their own health. All, all, all of these things are creating such tension uh, in the school experience. Now, I know you've been working with schools with teachers uh, this year, both last spring and in the fall. So I'm wondering what advice you have for this year specifically as teachers look ahead to this school year, and we're a few months into it, but as they think about prioritizing for this school year, what should teachers focus on? And from your perspective, what is the best way to accomplish that? Great question. And uh, so my husband is a teacher also just, and so I'm watching him as well and he's teaching remotely um, and just the deepest empathy for um, teachers. I was just reading some articles yeah. and you know, I have friends, they're saying, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm working mm -hmm. so hard and you know, still feel like I'm not very effective. And mm -hmm. so in that we have to give each other grace and we have to really think about what I keep asking people to focus on what matters the most right now? Mm -hmm. What will matter once we, you know, 2020 and beyond, what are the things that we really value? So instead of just marching through the curriculum, making sure that we're giving a lot of busy work um, that students can't keep up with and teachers are struggling to grade and keep up with, you know, connection with individuals, connection with students, reaching out instead of doing a whole class period or, you know, teaching all day virtually, 
Mm -hmm. um, how can we connect with students personally and really reach out to see how they're doing and to um, let them know that they're cared about and then teachers value that as well. So mm -hmm. that and then prioritizing once we know what really matters, spending our time and our days focusing on that more authentic learning, more personal connections. Um, more than ever right now, we need to do things that matter. And so if we're just marching through doing busy work and checking things off, it creates more stress and the sense of overwhelm. I think we really need to reduce and just focus on, um, you know, long-term projects. If we spent our days um, working on problems or, or weeks or months thinking about what is something you really care about right now and kids were researching they were investigating they were creating they were solving those are the things that we will take away from this moment in time the worksheet that we did that you know the you know the, the busy work and the packet mm -hmm. that we we completed those things aren't what matters and um and i'm not saying skills don't matter i'm not saying that our kids don't need to learn to read and write and, co and compute basic math but if we don't connect these to broader issues and goals that we are all experiencing mm -hmm. it's going to feel so disconnected and irrelevant and we are going to continue to lose more students and frankly more teachers that's really what I'm afraid of. Our best teachers now are saying they are broken and they're struggling. And if we lose our best teachers who have um, are always putting on a brave face and always willing to yeah. do what it takes and go that extra mile, um, I'm really, really scared of what's going to happen um, to the future of education. Yeah, the uh, you're so right about relationships and making those personal connections because the online environment can feel so impersonal and and those relationships for teachers too so administrators out there district leaders out there you know as much as we want teachers to make sure they build those relationships and stay connected to their students it's important administrators and district leaders to check in with teachers as well because they're just teachers are so giving to their students that they forget to give to themselves or may not have the energy or the space to give to themselves too do you think a focus on you know, I love that idea of solving problems and creation and, and innovation and all of that. Is that going to help ease some of the um, stress teachers might feel in terms of coverage? You know, teachers right now, I mean, obviously teachers were pressed for time to cover even in a face-to-face -face model. Now we move to a remote or a hybrid model. You're, I, I love the idea of prioritization. That's been a common theme of many folks I've talked to. <clears throat> Do you think that focus on competencies, 21st century skills helps ease some of that pressure? And if so, how? How does that ease some of the stress that teachers feel around that sort of tension, whether self-inflicted or external, that tension of coverage? Yeah. So I I really think this is one of the key things that we need to move away from in, in our schools and in education in general, that I have to cover it all. Because we have you know evidence time and time again that just covering it all doesn't help students retain doesn't help them um, use that knowledge in, in context and really have these competencies that carry with them. The things that matter mm -hmm. are that they can, you know, we need them to read. Can they find information? Can they synthesize? Can they um, seek something out to learn? And, and can they do it on their own without a teacher telling them what to do? So I think that we have to step back and really think about what it is our goals are and coverage is rarely the answer. And, and so, yes, giving ourselves permission um, to say, I can't cover this all. 
I, you know, here are the things I really want my students to learn. There's a great article talking about Marie Kondoing the curriculum. Really, what are the things that bring us joy? What are the things that we really um, want to focus on? Mm-hmm. And and knowing that, yeah, you're right. In face to face, we can't cover it all, and right. so we certainly can't when our lives are disrupted, and we're seeing students in you know short bursts or online, and knowing that um, they we need to give them opportunities to figure out what their goals are, what individual students need to be working on, and what are the things that we want to really mm-hmm. focus on when we have our time together. Yeah, it also makes me think about how we have traditionally looked at things as just just through the lens of an end product or an end result. And I think as, as teachers who are listening right now who have engaged in either project-based learning or inquiry-based learning, what you start to realize is how enriching the experience itself is. It's the asking of the question. It's the nurturing my curiosity. It's the research. It's the you know hypothesizing about potential solutions. I'm also learning during that. It's not just about me producing a solution, although the questions drive that. It's that whole kind of experience that just seems to, I think, get missed sometimes, which is, again, why, why your your approach, your book, uh, Learner-Centered Innovation, is so important to the conversation. But it leads me to this question. On, on page 33, uh, you write, and, and I always love it when people, you know, on page 33, you said this, and as if you have your whole book memorized. <laughs> That's right. I know I've said that to people too. They said, on page 76, you wrote this. And I'm like, uh, do you think I have my book memorized? Uh, but okay. <laughs> That's right. Here's what you said, Katie. Um, if you said, quote, if we want to ensure students have the skills needed to be successful and productive citizens, it is critical that we model and practice them in our classrooms, our schools, and communities, end quote. So let's let's explore that for a moment. Who has the ultimate say on what skills a successful and productive citizen need? I would submit to you, and, and you can tell me I'm wrong, but you, I would submit to you that the mandate of a public school is not just about the individual, that there is a kind of social contract in our society that says K-12 public education is essentially free. And in exchange for that, society has agreed through local and state or provincial governance, they, they have agreed to fund that. And through that, they, the, the society has a say in terms of what the outcomes of that publicly funded education system should be. So we know that either extreme being entirely learner centered or being entirely standardized is of course untenable. So where in your mind is the balance between being attentive to the long-term needs of a society that says this is what we want our citizens to be while at the same time attending to the acute needs of the learners? Where's that balance between the societal needs and the needs of the learners? Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, our, our schools were built on a system, this standardized system over a hundred years ago for, and the, the outcomes were designed for a different era, an industrial era. And they did a great job in many ways, getting, getting more kids to go to school, more graduates, more kids going to, going to high or college. And so when we talk about this shift to learner-centered and really focusing on the learner goals and, and meeting the needs of society, I believe the needs of society have changed from that model, yet our system of developing those have not. So I often go to the World Economic Forum and you know their goals that they update regularly. 
And in 2020, complex problem solving, emotional intelligence, flexibility. These are the types of creativity, of goals that they say the workforce needs, our citizens need. And yet you go back to schools and just as you said in that quote on page 33 or whatever, yeah. if we're not, are we teaching those skills specifically? So if I go into a lot of classrooms, you don't see teachers specifically teaching creativity and specifically teaching problem solving in ways that are that are measured and talked about and guided it is you know it's up to the individual teacher largely because the curriculum is much more focused on content um, and and foundational skills yet we aren't wrapping them around those um, those larger skills that we need students to be successful um, and one of the things that many teachers have said throughout this pandemic is that it's really shown a light on students' passivity. That, you know, they show up, they sit in their chair, they look forward, they, you know, are seemingly engaged because yeah. they're sitting in class. We give them credit and we move on. Uh, and yet we find that when these students were graduating with high GPAs who have been, you know, compliant and completed, don't have the skills that the businesses and our society needs to be able to discuss issues, to be able to come, you know, solve problems collaboratively, to be able to think about flexible, innovative solutions. And so, yeah, I think that those are the things we do need to be teaching that are um, based on the societal needs, but also building on individual strengths and talents in this in the school. So um, yes, not every kid doing whatever they want all day long, Right. But let's collaborative, let's let's spend our days um, teaching kids skills that they need to solve problems today and that they'll use for the rest of their lives. Right. So the assertion is not that it's a free for all for the individual. So when we say learner centered innovation, it's putting the learner at the center partially in a way that helps prepare them through different societal goals that that should be established through the curriculum that in many places has not yet. And so you're right that there's this focus on content and this focus on coverage, and yet we're not really drilling down into the skills that are necessary for students to be adaptable citizens going forward and, and trying to find that balance. Uh, so let's help help listeners maybe if they're still struggling with the concept, What's how do you, um, how do you define personalized learning versus say individualized learning, right? So if we say individualized learning is just, I get to do whatever I want to, how would you sort of, somebody says, well, what is personalized learning? What does that mean? Personalized learning in the 21st century? How would you, how would you sort of answer that? Yeah, great question. And I think it is important to name our terms and define them. Mm -hmm. uh, when a lot of times personalized learning is, is connected to technology. You know, we had this whole big personalized learning that you sit a kid at a computer, they can take a take a test and know where they are and and work on adaptive curriculum. And so that is not necessarily my definition of personalized learning. When I it's it starts with the person, the individual, and um, who they are, their interests, their strengths, their goals, and that makes it more personal. I think you mentioned earlier when we when those authentic learning experiences, mm -hmm. we learn best when it's personal and it means something to us and mm -hmm. we have those opportunities to act as individuals. And so instead of sitting at a, you know, sitting at a desk, filling out a worksheet, doing the end of the chapter test because that's on the pacing guide. When I think about classrooms that are focused on personalized learning, they know each individual learner 
the learners know themselves. They know, um, they know their goals. This doesn't mean we don't have learning targets. It doesn't mean that we don't have clear, transparent um, goals that we're trying to achieve, but it, we, each individual knows where they are in relationship to that goal. And they have opportunities to work with peers, to do some research, to you know, learn in a small group these basic skills. They might get some direct instruction, but it is because of the individual and where they are, not because of the pacing guide that was externally designed and is being implemented. Yeah, it's you know it's something where for years now I feel like I've, I've been answering the same questions, uh, maybe not as frequently as you, but just the question about you know how do you do personalized learning when you have curricular standards and this idea that standards seem to always equate to standardization and it need not right. equate to that, right? Our, our standards could be innovation. Our standards could be critical thinking. Our, our standards could really focus students on those 21st century skills. And that doesn't mean they're taught or assessed in a standardized way. So um, we, we just have to keep sort of messaging that I think because it's important that um, teachers realize that there's a lot you can do within the perceived constraints. And of course there are constraints within uh, curricular standards but not as many as, the, as might be uh, perceived, right? I mean, not as many as you might, right. you might first think. Yeah, thoughts on that? Yeah, we would, when you think about standards, I mean, if you look at, there's obviously a lot of pushback on Common Core and different perspectives, but if you look mm -hmm. at the Common Core standards, I will say to families, what is it that you don't want your kids to know? right? <laughs> like yeah, you yeah. want them to be able to read and understand the, mm -hmm. the text and you want them to make informed decisions. You want yeah. um, students to be able to persevere and persist in, you know, the mm -hmm. math. Um, and so it's not the standards that are the problem. It's the curriculum that has been mm -hmm. adopted that is standardized. And right. so it's often the way that it's, it's um, described in a textbook mm -hmm. or in a, in a curriculum guide not necessarily the standards. So if you really focus on the end goal, then you can navigate that in ways that are meaningful for students and the community in which you live and work and teach. Yeah, it's a, it's, it, you know, when I listen to people complain about Common Core, so as an outsider, as a Canadian, but I spend a lot of time in the United States working with schools and districts, their complaints about Common Core are really complaints about standardized testing and curriculum, not not about the the the, the goals of Common Core itself. And I'm not saying that that it's it's the the be all and end all or the model for everybody, but the goals are sophisticated and they're deep and there there is yeah. critical thinking. There's all of that in there. It's the standardized testing that gets conflated. So let's go and talk a little bit about. Um, I was very intrigued by your your idea around an innovation ecosystem on on page 65. So here I go again, Katie, quoting you. Uh, try to remember what you wrote a few years ago. Uh, you you write on page 65. Change in education is about creating better ecosystems for learning and innovation, not just better programs and tools. And I thought that really caught my attention. So what is an innovation ecosystem, and how do we develop and nurture that? Yeah. Uh, so I like to describe it in three concentric circles. Um, and so again, as you, we've talked about starting with the learners, most of our systems are designed based on other metrics The learners come kind of second or third in line. So if we start with learners and those goals, we really care about, and I love it when they are designed locally. So what is it this community cares about? Do they want creative students? Do they want problem solvers? Do they want um, kids who can be creative and innovative? Whatever those things are, if you start with that learner profile and get really clear about that, then 
you can design your learning experiences based on those goals. And so that, that second tier layer for the circle is really then what are those learning experiences we wanna see? And I often ask people to think about and reflect on experiences that have been really meaningful to them as learners. And so just as you shared, they're personal, they're authentic. There's opportunities for revision and struggle and reflection. So we really wanna build in those types of learning experiences so that we can get to those um, core goals. And then the outside layers, what does the community look like for leadership? How are the, you know, how is the vision tra um, transparent to everybody? What's the accountability system? Are we holding people accountable for those goals we care about? Or do we have some totally um, mismatched accountability system? And so that ecosystem, they're not three separate things. It's not learners, it's not curriculum, it's not assessment and vision. They're intertwined and they, um, they have to work together to be able to create the best learning environments. And I also think that this can be, this ecosystem exists in a classroom. So the teacher creates this. It also exists at schools and in our districts um, and, it, and it impacts how people work together and how they see their role in education. Right. It's, it's, you know, so tempting for folks to go find a shrink wrap binder or some sort of online program to teach creativity or critical thinking or what have you, but, but trying to build that culture. Um, and how do you think we sustain that? So once a teacher starts to establish that, what are some of the fundamentals that kind of, once we've developed that, that ecosystem, you know, what, what prevents us from slipping back into old habits or how do you think we sustain that over time? Yeah. How does that become uh, habit? Ha well, habit, and I think it's also the accountability. So accountability seems to be a bad word, right? Because yeah. it's equated yeah. with standardization. Right. But I don't think accountability is bad. And I just got off the call with a superintendent who was talking about he took his learner profile and he has aligned the metrics with the board, with the teachers, their evaluations, their own accountability metrics. And so all of these are closely linked. And so now I know what I'm working towards. I don't have someone saying, you know, in this beautiful message on, on our website that creativity matters. And then they're holding me accountability accountable to the benchmark test on this day that my kids know, you know, the depth of content. And so when those things are aligned, then we create systems where teachers can collaborate, developing that sense of efficacy and collaboration mm -hmm. that is focused on the right goals that yeah. matter. And they are working together that students are held accountable to those goals. They know what they're working towards. They have show evidence of their own, uh, you know, how they're developing those skills and it's building throughout the system. It has to be intentional all the time, just as intentional as we've been about standardized tests, we've built that ecosystem. And so now we need to unwind some of those things and, and really align them to the metrics that, that matter and that we care about. Yeah, it's interesting that it all seems to be about the setup. We talked earlier about the curriculum and the standards. You know, what are our standards and can we focus those standards on innovation? Can we focus them on competencies? And here again, it's not the issue of accountability. We we are all accountable. Public school systems are accountable to the public. We mentioned that earlier. Private schools are accountable to boards of directors and, and you know, different uh, governing bodies. But it is to what are you being held accountable? Are you being held accountable to, you know, content depth or are you being held accountable to developing innovative thinkers and, and creators and, and, and critical thinkers? Uh, it just seems that, you know, all of this 
is assisted by taking a, a deeper dive and, and maybe rethinking that which we are holding people accountable to and re, reprogramming that, if you will, and rethinking that so that it starts to, to sort of flow through, through our system. So I love that concept of, of an ecosystem and just creating that kind of environment where there isn't this, there's this interdependency that, that kind of all feeds on each other. Um, can you walk us through the teacher as designer continuum? That, that's something that, something that also caught my attention in the book. Um, should teachers view that continuum, you know, from replicate, adapt, integrate, and innovate, should they view that as a hierarchy for their own professional growth? Should they view that as a, a menu of available options? How, how should a teacher consume that teacher as designer continuum? Yeah, I think the reason I or how that kind of came about is when I was in the classroom, I, you know, looked at those shiny little binders and shrink wrapped curriculum and went, <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, I, <laughs> I want to do I want to design yeah. these projects and I want to get to know my students and I would spend a lot of time doing it, but that's what I enjoyed. And that's what um, that's where I found more success with my students. Mm -hmm. And then I became a coach and realized that there were so many different approaches when I saw, you know, my eight colleagues teaching the same thing in very different ways. Um, I realized how important those foundational building blocks were to know to build from. And so when we don't, um, we don't provide that that foundation for people to build from, we we lower the we lower the floor. Right. right. We, because we start saying like everyone has to start from scratch and our own experiences don't necessarily um, provide us those opportunities to create those relevant, meaningful experiences from scratch in every classroom across the board. So if we create and build um, this great foundation that some curriculum is not a bad thing, but we don't want that to be the ceiling. Right. So if we, we want to be able to understand that there's a great foundation we're building from. And if I choose to just come in and start from there, that should be fine. And in some places, my reading curriculum and, you know, teaching kids the foundational skills of reading, I might build from this really great, robust resource and just use that. But when I want to start having kids choose books to read, that's where I might be more innovative and say, I want to do literature circles and let kids pick different books and come together and not just focus on the basal reader because mm -hmm. I don't think that that's meeting the needs of my students. Right. So it's much more about um, where do we lifting the, the floor so we all start from a really great place and mm -hmm. then providing teachers learning opportunities and permission to say mm -hmm. this is not you, you can innovate, you can build from this, you can replicate it, but you can also adapt it. And you can also innovate based on your students and giving them the permission, the tools and the, um, and the space to be able to do that and then share. So I do think, um, and I don't think you have to do it in all, you know, elementary right. school teachers. It's not like reinvent everything. It's like a few <laughs> yeah. things here and there that are meaningful. And then once someone has innovated, you share that. And right. another teacher can totally take it and adapt it for their needs. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely not a hierarchy, but um, I wanted to just make more explicit okay. what, what teachers do as they take resources and make them their own without mm -hmm. everyone feeling like they have to start from scratch. Yeah. And starting from that foundation is really, you know, is that critical part. We went through a massive reorganization of our curriculum here in British Columbia, and it really focused on 21st century competencies. But one of the mistakes in messaging that came out 
was this idea that it's all about the competencies and knowledge doesn't matter anymore. And yet you, you can't be creative and innovative without being creative and innovative about something. So you have to have that foundation, right? And I think it, unfortunately, I think that we're, I think we're coming around on that, but we unfortunately had this false dichotomy that was created between competencies and knowledge. You have to think critically about something. Yeah. And uh, I think building that foundation is, is a really important piece. Um, have you seen that elsewhere where that messaging yeah. kind of gets mixed? Oh, all the time. And I think sometimes I, I, when I say things, people assume that, you know, learner centered, it's just do whatever you want. And, <laughs> and, you know, let's just, yeah. let's just come in and let kids and then, you know, teachers like, but I have to teach something, you mm -hmm. know, how can I just be learner centered? And so I do, it is a total false dichotomy. Yeah. And so, you know, we want to be able to expand students horizons right we want to teach them new things and there is there is knowledge that's really important there's these foundational skills that are critical that we want to be building on mm -hmm. but that also is not the ceiling so right. we want to be able to um we need to teach these skills but there also needs to be ways that kids are applying them in ways that matter and yeah. so I think it kind of goes back and forth in this ecosystem of what are my goals? What are things I care about? What, what are problems I want to solve? Oh, what skills do I need to learn to be able to do that? What do I already have? What do I need to learn? And so I think it's really being transparent about the skills that are foundational and more linear, but also about um, the application of those skills and those competencies that are much more aligned to these 21st century skills of creativity and problem solving. Um, and they're, yeah, they're not separate. No, <laughs> they're very no, much intertwined. Right, for sure. And and my colleagues, uh, Nicole Dimich and Cassandra Erkins and I often describe it as the means and ends switching places. In other words, there are some things that we used to do, you know, back in the 90s. Uh, you know, when I started teaching as a high school history teacher 30 years ago, you know, I put kids into groups and had them do a group project, but the goal was content acquisition. I, I wasn't teaching them how to collaborate. I didn't teach them how to resolve conflict. I didn't teach them how to come to consensus, those types of things. So now the way we express it is that we're no longer using collaboration to acquire content. We're using content to teach you how to collaborate. We're using content to teach you how to innovate. We're using content to teach you how to think critically. So it's almost a reversal of purpose. And that, that seems to help people understand that this isn't a dismiss a dismissal of knowledge, but it's a repurposing of knowledge. Yeah. And I what what I want to highlight that you just said that's so important is teaching those skills. We sometimes say my kids can't collaborate. And then we leave it at that and move on. <laughs> right. Instead of saying our jobs are to teach them how to collaborate. Our right. jobs are to teach them how to resolve that conflict and problem solve. Right. And in that, those are the skills that are important. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you absolutely content is part of that. Yeah. So it's instead you see kids who are successful and they're like, oh, because I figured out how to manage my time. Mm -hmm. I figured out how yeah. to prioritize. And yeah. so instead, let's not make that just a kid figured it out on the side. Let's make that part of you know the core of what we teach right. in addition to um, the skills so that they can start navigating their journey. And we, as the teachers, don't have to be the one to drag them along each step right. of the way. 
Right. That, that level of intentionality for me is the biggest difference now between what we may have done at a very pedestrian level in the past. Now there's, there's real focus and, and attention on that, which leads me to my uh, sort of final question around your perspective. We've got a few other questions to, to talk about, but this final question, of course, I want to talk about assessment because assessment always seems to be that, you know, elephant in the room when, when it comes to innovation and, and competencies, you know, uh, myself and my colleagues assert that we can't develop anything. We can't make these claims of developing innovative or creative thinkers and not assess it. We don't have to test it necessarily in the traditional sense that we've always tested it, but it has to be assessed in order to support that collective claim about developing innovative thinkers for the 21st century. So teachers can often feel overwhelmed by, uh, you know, Try the prospect of creating innovative thinkers, never mind trying to assess them uh, and assessing innovation and all that. So when you talk about assessment in the work that you do, how, how do you advise teachers on the assessment of innovation and creativity? What's the approach and what is some of the advice that you give to them? Yeah, well, I'm constantly evolving. But I think one of the things that I have learned is it's contextual, like many things. And so in some places, I'm really creative you know, but in some situations, I'm, I'm not very creative, um, depending on, you know, my comfort level and just who I am. So I also think it's something that students need to own, right? I, I need to own. So how do we be really explicit about those goals and what that looks like and have, bring students in to do the self-assessment, mm -hmm. bring peers in to talk about it, show examples. So I see this much more in a way of a portfolio, of really showing um, multiple um, pieces of evidence over time of when students are showing their creativity, their problem solving, when they've showed persistence. Um, so it really, I think, begins with clear goals, individual goal setting, collection of evidence and self-assessments um, over time. And, you know, my, my, I love when my kids do their student-led conferences and they come and show, look, mom, this is how I've been growing. Here's this great piece of writing. Do you see how I revised it over time? And I showed that, um, that persistence. And so those are the ways that we can document it and assess it, but it doesn't have to be a teacher sitting alone, you know, marking their sometimes always never creative. That's not going to be helpful for educators. It's not helpful for the individuals. Um, you know, I made the mistake um, in my learning journey, working with um, a district, we were, you know, we sat down and we, we mapped out and made all these rubrics of what it is to be a creative and innovative thinker. And then we, as soon as teachers started using the checklist, the energy and just got sucked out of the room right. because it became so standardized instead of something that we are growing. So if we want to grow um, creativity and problem solving, then we want to show examples of it and keep building on it. You don't just like learn creativity in second grade and you're done, right? right? You're always growing. And so those same skills that we want a second grader to be able to show, I also should expect my, that of myself as a leader in an organization. I just am going to show examples of what that looks like in different ways, but, but those are skills that we continue to grow and nurture and develop over time and they show up in different ways. Yeah. So I don't know if I exactly answered that, but I don't think <laughs> that we, I don't think that we look at assessing these skills the same ways that we've been assessing content knowledge. 
I think we have to expand our view of assessment, who's part of that process, what it's for, and and how we can make it more of a a long-term portfolio building type of process instead of a check mark on a report card. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you on that, that that while I, you know, earlier made the assertion that in order to make the claim that we are doing these things and developing 21st century, you know, thinkers and, and creators and innovators, we have to have some substance to support that claim. But that doesn't mean the evidence we use to support that claim is identical to that which we've used for content. I also loved your your reference to context because I, I think just as we've seen, and I think the research on critical thinking is much more extensive, but I think you know it's just logical to know that the 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 depth of my knowledge within a subject discipline will lead to the depth of my creativity or critical thinking, right? So how much I know uh, in science is going to allow me, because you think about who's innovative in our society, it's those who have expertise, right? And so expertise, even Howard Gardner talks about five minds of the future. And one of them is is developing an expertise and and knowing things and and, and learning about the competencies within the context of, of that subject area, which I think is 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 a wise way to approach that. You know, it makes me also think about a question that I've just constantly wrestle with, which is how do we assess creativity? I'd be interested in your response to this. How do we assess creativity without stifling creativity, right? A lot of people say to me, Tom, we shouldn't assess creativity because that will diminish someone's willingness to be creative. Interested in your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think we want to we want to capture it, right? So mm-hmm. the assessment is much more, like you said, showing evidence. What are mm-hmm. some What are some ways? And so I would ask students, what are some ways that you have been creative? How did you How did you tackle that problem? What did mm-hmm. it look like? And how do you have evidence of, of how you have been been creative? And that would look very different, you know, yeah. in different people. So my daughter would show her art and these beautiful things that, that she's created. My son might be really creative in a way that he has like solved a problem and, and put something together and how he figured that out. So mm-hmm. again, contextual, but I really think it has to be on the learner and showing that evidence. Because if we do go, oh, yeah, you're a creative person, right? Mm-hmm. We've learned across the board that creativity is not, is not a narrow way that we've defined it in art class, but it is really about how we solve problems and how we look at the world. And I think your point around expertise is something that is like worthy of being highlighted again and again, mm-hmm. that yeah. we, we are creative and, and critical thinkers in places that we have deep expertise. Mm-hmm. And when we're novices in some areas, we definitely can't come up with, you know, aren't likely to come up with these like right. really thoughtful um, ways to solve the problem because we don't have the deep expertise. And so it's knowing what you know and what you don't and, right. and being able to, to find and develop that expertise as well. Yeah, that is, I mean, that that view of creativity, you know, that was a decade ago. I remember having conversation with teachers who said, I can't assess creativity. I, I'm not an art teacher and we just have to, at some point realize that creativity is not just about producing something that is aesthetically pleasing, uh, but it really is about, um, you know, that expansive view, as you talked about, about what it means to be innovative and, and how these competencies all work together. We, we sometimes talk about them separately, you know, critical thinking, collaboration and innovation, but they really do like collaborative problem solving incorporates at least three of them right there. It's collaboration, it's critical thinking, it's innovation to solve problems. It, it, you know, it's, it's that synthesis of all of those competencies. So yeah. I love the idea that you talked about too, of just capturing the evidence as opposed to, 
you know, the judgment and, and letting the evidence kind of emerge as, as, uh, as, as being evidence of where, where that student is in terms of their innovation and having them articulate it. Yeah, really, really, really good thoughts. Uh, Katie, this, this has been great. I, I just have really appreciated um, the opportunity to chat with you. We're going to finish up uh, today with, uh, as I always do, with some fun questions. Um, I like to uh, finish every interview with a little, you know, some lighthearted questions that will, you know, we've had a pretty serious conversation about innovation. And I just thought, you know, I like to end the interviews with some fun, give people a chance to get to know Katie Martin a little bit on a personal level, nothing too intrusive, but just some fun questions that will put you on the spot a little bit and force you to think about uh, your, yeah, but uh, let's, let's start with this one. What's all time, what's your favorite family vacation? It could be with your family now or from when you were a child, but all time favorite family vacation memory. Gosh, we have so many. Um, <laughs> we, we love to travel. So yeah. I think we talk about this a lot as a family. We Two years ago, we went to Thailand and mm. we um, took my then nine and 10 year old um, traveling throughout Thailand and um, and Cambodia played with elephants and just got to spend some really quality time exploring and learning about different culture. So yeah, yeah. swimming I, in some beautiful oceans. <laughs> <laughs> Thailand is, uh, is an amazing spot for sure. And uh, you can do that. Um, okay. Yeah, no, it's, it, you, you remember when we used to travel? Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, I always say to people, I haven't set a foot in a plane since March 13th. And it's just, uh, I'm counting the days. I, I really miss it. Okay. Second one. Who is your very first, when you were younger, who is your very first celebrity crush? Oh, Corey Haim. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> I don't, I, my, that was like second grade, but I had yeah. a, a very big celebrity crush on, yeah. on Corey Haim. Corey That's Haim. So yeah, we all have them, you know. Mine was I was 10. Mine was Cheryl Ladd. I don't people probably don't remember Cheryl Ladd. She replaced Farrah Fawcett on Charlie's Angels and I was 10 years old in 1977 and I was just enamored with her as a 10-year-old. So it's always fun. Uh number 3, here we go. What what food item or meal did you think when before you tried it, did you think you were going to hate? that you now have ended up loving? What food item or meal surprised you? You you thought you'd hate it, but now you love it. Mm, good question. Um, I think that I'll go with, I just had this recently, fritta de mari. So like squid and mussel mm -hmm. pasta. Um, when I was in Italy traveling, um, they offered it and I thought, I am not gonna like this. I don't like spaghetti. And it ended up being pretty amazing. And I just yeah. ordered it for my birthday dinner. There you go. Well, and happy birthday to you. <laughs> uh, what was your first job? Very first job you ever had? My first paying job was a wait or hostess at El Torito. So a little okay. Mexican restaurant um, by my house. I went over and I was, I was a hostess for a couple of years. I ended up working there for seven years. Still wow. my longest job. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a hostess the whole seven years or? No, I was, I was a hostess and then I, then I waited tables and then yeah. I ended up being, um, you know, working as a cocktail server and doing a lot of different things there over the seven years. Yeah. But I loved I think, it. I think restaurants are, are pretty common first job. I know mine was as a, as a bus boy in a, 
in a restaurant. Yeah. I was 14 years old and, and uh, I think restaurants definitely uh, pr provide a good foundation for you. And uh, there's uh, it, it's, it's a tough job working in a restaurant. That's for sure. All yeah, right. Last... I loved it. It was great. Yeah. And my kids will not work in a restaurant until they're <laughs> 21. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> All right. Last one. All time favorite concert you've attended. Beastie Boys. Beastie Boys. Okay. I love that. Yeah, when it was, was actually, it? Where was it? How, tell us a story. Uh, it was in San Diego. Uh, I was my, I was 16. It was my first concert. And I just remember like the energy of being on the floor and being in the, you know, down the pit and the whole state, the whole ground is just moving um, yeah. in unison um, as they were, as they were performing. It was an awesome show. Yeah. So you, uh, is, is, is hip hop something that, uh, is throughout your uh, your your iTunes or your Spotify? Yeah, a little bit. I kind of listen to a little bit of everything. I was yeah. the, the kid in high school. Was like, I hate. I like anything but country. I hate country. <laughs> and now more than often, I find myself like playing right. some country. There's, you know, love yeah. some good '90s. Yeah. 90s um you know i listen to anything absolutely <laughs> you know i it's funny because as, as i've gotten older as well i find my taste is really simplified is that i like good music and it doesn't yeah. matter what genre good music is good music and good live music is is even better for sure yeah. okay i've got one final question for you katie and and one of the things that i'm doing with this podcast is trying to run a theme of uh, success and happiness and just exploring different people's perspectives on those concepts. And so I've asked every uh, person I've interviewed this final question, and I'm interested in your perspective. And the question is simply, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? It's a good question. I, I think for me, it simply is that I can wake up in the morning, feel loved, <laughs> feel inspired to do the work that I get to do and have the means and resources to be able to do that on a daily basis um, mm -hmm. without worrying about, you know, food and shelter and, and right. be able to have a place to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, again, just feel, feeling inspired, feeling loved, um, you know, that, that makes us feel success in, in however way, way we define those things, but. Uh, and I getting to that. travel too. So and getting to travel. That, that's also having the, having the, the resources to be able to travel and explore and right. enjoy yeah. the world. When we used to be able to do those things. So fingers crossed, hopefully we will be able to do that sooner. Uh, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen, but we hope that that is, uh, is something that is hopefully on the horizon. Cause like I said earlier, I miss it. And, uh, I really just miss the opportunities both for vacation, but also for work. Um, yeah. just, just being together with people, is something I, I greatly miss. So Katie, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Listeners, I, I would truly encourage you to follow Katie on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Katie Martin edu. Uh, I'd also really encourage you to check out her website. Uh, that's www.katiemartin.com where there is just a ton of great information there um, for parents as well as for educators. Uh, there's information there about contacting Katie to come and speak or do workshops at your at your schools, uh, you know, booking her for a PD sessions, get a link to a, a TEDx talk that she did uh, where she, uh, I won't spoil the story about the, uh, the mouse and the motorcycle, uh, but it was a really, really great talk and I would encourage you to go there. So uh, again, katiemartin.com uh, is where you'll find all the information. So Katie, again, uh, I can't thank you enough for being here today. Um, 
I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure at some point we'll have a chance to do this again. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. It's been great. I appreciate your perspective as well. I learned a lot. Great. Thanks, Katie. In the news this week, like every week, is COVID. And you've noticed the last couple of weeks there has not been an in the news segment because I've been wrestling with how to kind of handle this situation. Because on the one hand, I don't want to be repetitive. But on the other hand, in the news is something I think is important to share with you the news that is happening in education. But right now, there are just so many stresses and frustrations and pressures that people are fearing, uh, feeling and, and fearing for their health and their safety and for the students. You know, whether you're a teacher, administrator, parents, students, uh, district staff, even departments of education, the pressure is enormous. And yes, there's a lot of blame being thrown around and and it's always easy to sit on the sidelines and point fingers at those who actually have to make decisions. And yet, on the other hand, there is sometimes blame that should go around because decisions may be poorly thought through. So I'm not ignoring uh, the situation with COVID, and nor am I fearful of bringing bad news to the podcast or talking about things in a way that that um, maybe you know is less than favorable in terms of what schools are dealing with, you know, you know, I was pretty definitive about my stance on the Alberta curriculum revision. But at the same time, I I don't want to be repetitive. And I also want to be very sensitive to different contexts, because there's just so many places I don't work. Uh, I don't understand the nuances, I don't understand the situations. And so I think it would be inappropriate for me to comment definitively on situations where I have very limited, if any, knowledge about what's happening there. So for the time being, this segment in the news is going to be on a week-to-week basis, and I'll decide if, you know, there's stories that I think are worthy of bringing to your attention. I'm going to do that. But at the same time, as you've noticed the last couple of weeks, there may be weeks where this segment doesn't appear simply because there's nothing new to share or nothing sort of interesting to talk about other than the fact that we're all trying to navigate our way through um, COVID and and trying to find the best way possible uh, to, to deal with our, our situation and circumstances. So uh, in the news, you and, and also tweets of the week, maybe segments that appear and don't appear, uh, they're, they're kind of going to come up as a, uh, as a week-to-week thing. The Don't At Me segment, the interview, of course, and Assessment Corner will be the mainstays of the, mainstays of the podcast. And the rest of it, will will take it on a week-to-week basis. Um, I just, again, I want to be sensitive to what people are dealing with. I don't want to be overly critical or overly optimistic about situations that I know little about. And, um, and so, I, in fairness, uh, I just think it's important that um, we press pause on that and and from my perspective, just leave that to those different jurisdictions or different areas. So COVID is in the news. It's dominating the news right now. Um, We all have to some degrees a fear and a worry about what the future holds, what this school year is going to look like. And uh, the last thing anybody needs is one more person commenting on something they know little about. So That's where we're at now with this segment. Um, And like I said, on a week-to-week basis in the news may or may not appear on the podcast. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to explore 
a topic that came up several times during this past week. And it was uh, during a lot of the Zoom PD sessions and trainings that I was leading. And it was the question really centers around reassessment and finding the time uh, in implementation. Uh, all of the people who asked me this question during the trainings were not resistant to the notion or the idea of reassessment. They were more challenged with trying to find the time to implement a reassessment system. Now, we know that there are still some folks out there who disagree with the idea of reassessment or uh, just in theory, believing that there's no second chances in life or anything like that, which is absurd. Um, and this, you know, for some people, they believe that uh, those who weren't successful the first time didn't try or something like that. And and yes, there, there are those cases out there where students didn't try the first time and we all have some of those stories but not enough to enact a universal policy against reassessment, that's for sure. Yeah, I have seen students in the past, you know, kind of cut, try to cut corners, especially early in the implementation process where they, you know, they didn't study, they just want to get a preview of the test and then they, they come back in the next time for the reassessment, which is just, again, that's a systems and an implementation error. Not, that's not really the student, it's, it's, it's the implementation system that allows that to occur. So the first thing reassessment can't mean is a duplication of every assessment the teacher utilizes. Teachers are busy enough that if, you, if you're trying to double up or even triple up on the assessments that you implement and utilize, that is a recipe for burnout. Uh, first, the, the idea of duplicating all of your assessments is unsustainable. And two, I would submit to you that is unnecessary for you to get a clear picture of where the learner is. The biggest challenge we face is that we are still overly fixated on task types, you know, tests, quizzes, assignments, projects, labs. We need to be fixated on the learning the tasks reveal. And that way, the teacher will see where reassessment is already occurring throughout the term, throughout the quarter, throughout the semester, or even throughout the year. I mean, this becomes even more important if you are in a hybrid or a remote learning situation right now where assessment is challenging enough, never mind trying to add in a process of reassessment. So the first piece of advice I give to people say, well, where do we find the time is first look for where you're already doing it, right? In other words, where do you assess the same learning outcomes or the same standards multiple times? Now, from there, we start to think about, you know, do we use the most recent evidence? Do we use the more recent evidence? Do we use the most frequent evidence? Those are discussions that need to be had. Um, and remembering that assessment is always about adequate sampling. So you and your colleagues, especially if you teach the same grade level or same grade level subject, really have to decide what represents an adequate sampling. So you either have seen it enough times over the course of a, a period of time, or you would use the most recent evidence when the single sample itself is thorough enough to give you a complete picture of where the learner is. Weighted task types really are an antiquated way of organizing evidence of learning. If we are gathering evidence of learning, then why aren't we organizing it by learning? Task types had more to do with point accumulation, which we know still occurs in some classrooms, but really should have been permanently put to rest decades ago. Again, if we teach to standards and outcomes, we assess by those standards and outcomes, we elicit evidence by those standards and outcomes, why would we splinter the evidence suddenly at the very end 
by organizing it by task types and thereby not getting a complete picture. Okay, so first, look at where you're already doing it. Second, in the event that you are duplicating some events, because this is not an either or choice, first, look for where it's already occurring, and then second, supplement with duplicate events. So in the event that you are duplicating, make sure that more learning occurs in between each assessment. Reassessment is not an exercise in, hey, Maria, come in tomorrow and guess differently. Like, that's not what this is about. This is not a try it again, try it again, try it again, try it again kind of exercise. We want this to be, at least from my perspective, we want reassessment to be a meaningful, continual learning experience. So I would say to everyone, K through 12, reassessment should never be automatic. Now, of course, how we handle reassessment with six-year-olds is going to be different than how we handle reassessment with 16-year-olds. I, I understand that. And of course, everything needs to be age-appropriate and developmentally sensitive and, and all of those things. Um, so what, what I'm saying is we're not trying to create routines that prevent reassessment from occurring, but we want this to be a meaningful, continual learning experience, right? So duplicate events should be preceded by the student with support of the teacher increasing their understanding, their skills, so that there is a strong suspicion that the reassessment will actually verify that more learning has occurred, right? So the agreement should be teacher provides the opportunities for continual learning and opportunities to reassess, and the student has to put in the work. That's kind of the 50-50 agreement I think is most productive. Now, yes, you know, providing tutorials and guidance and all of that does take some time too, but it's really the productive use of the time right? Rather than the teacher just saying, come in tomorrow and try it again, and then the teacher having to make three or four or five different versions of the same assessment, which is sometimes not even possible. It should be, you know, this whole reassessment piece should be worth the time for both the teacher and the student. So keep our focus on learning, keep the focus on support, and when you're duplicating events, make sure that in between the one event and the next event, there is a meaningful learning experience rather than just trying to focus on the student accumulating credit. A third, I would say, try to organize your assessments by standards or outcomes rather than question type. That way, when a duplication of the assessment is necessary, the student doesn't have to complete the entire assessment. That certain sections may be what the student focuses on because it's those standards or this standard that the student struggled with or needs more support with, right? So we just focus on what's necessary to clean up versus having the student repeat the entire assessment and, and thereby being a little bit unfocused in terms of where the learning needs to occur. Now I know it's not always that clean because a lot of standards overlap within certain questions or tasks or demonstrations of learning. Again, to, to do the whole assessment again is really to, to be overly fixated on the task. So do the best you can to try to isolate which aspects of learning the student struggled with. So therefore, that's what we focus on in terms of support. And that's what we end up reassessing. Uh, again, I, I recognize that it's not always that clean, but do the best you can to, to find ways to separate those things out so that uh, again, it's about efficiency and effectiveness in terms of the use of your minutes. And finally, especially with something much larger like a project, 
try to implement reassessment along the way, along the process of producing the project, right? So reprojecting is really difficult. Um, you know, with something like PBL or inquiry-based learning, uh, I think what you can try to do is to reassess in more micro chunks, right? So reassess their inquiry question and, and make sure that that question is refined. Um, you know, reassess, for example, their hypothesis and, and see if you can help refine that through feedback and help continually refine the question to make it more rigorous or whatever it might be, or their, or their, their thoughts about potential solutions. Reassess the quality of their research to ensure that they've gathered enough information to make a, an on-point decision or a pretty thorough examination of the question or dilemma that they're exploring. And again, reassess their potential solutions as they communicate what they think should be done as a result of their investigation, uh, continue to refine that way. So rather than waiting for this epic reassessment event once the entire process has been completed, it may be wise for teachers to be more involved on a micro level. Now, of course, you're involved with all of that, but what I mean is more involved on a reassessment basis throughout that process. So we're not getting to the end and, and feeling like the student has to do the whole thing over again. And I think most teachers who implement project-based learning or inquiry-based learning probably do that already. At least I know when it's effective, the teachers are still involved and, and still providing feedback and guidance uh, but just from a reassessment lens, think about, just look at look at it through that reassessment lens and you'll start to see where you can refine some of that. That way it happens more organically uh, and refinement happens uh, along the way. Now, again, it, it's challenging. Reassessment is challenging. Um, to ignore those challenges uh, is to do a disservice to you, those of you trying to change or grow your practices. For leaders out there, you know, whether you are, uh, you know, a, a school-based leader, uh, administrator, or even district-level leaders, it is important to be honest and fair about the challenges teachers face with reassessment. Yes, reassessment is a necessary part of a continual learning process, and yes, it's part of the transition many schools go through as they implement standards-based grading or things like that, but it doesn't mean it's always easy to implement and always simple to implement. So, we have to be empathetic about the growing pains and the challenges that teachers face. And so if we can use some of these strategies, look for where we're already doing it, let's make it a meaningful experience in between the duplicate events, right? Uh, let's focus on what it is the student actually needs to improve upon by organizing our assessments and thinking about that continual uh, micro chunks in a project or some sort of larger demonstration of learning. If we can help people understand, help teachers understand where they can infuse this into their practice, it's, it's going to uh, help them a lot. Uh, you know, for teachers, implementing reassessment is likely going to mean you're going to have to do less of something else. Because again, uh, I don't know anyone who's not busy. So busy is not the issue. The issue is the effectiveness and the efficiency with how we use our instructional minutes. And so for me, it's always about thinking about if I'm going to do more of this, what am I going to do less of? So teachers, be open to the idea that you may have to do less of something else to make room for what I think is a pretty important process. Reassessment is necessary because what you're teaching is important. And it matters that all students get there. Like to not reassess is to essentially say to some students, well, it ultimately doesn't matter to me whether you actually reach proficiency with what you're learning. It just matters that you do it on my timing. Ensuring all students learn 
is one of our core mandates, of course. So we have to make room for reassessment, either through the recognition of where it's already occurring and then reconcile the new evidence with the old evidence or create routines that make reassessment a productive experience and and create it so that students understand that this isn't just about, you know, being sloppy the first time or not prepared the first time, but it really is about their continual learning. And make sure that if students aren't holding up their end of the bargain, that should trigger a conversation about their investment in their learning. And if it becomes chronic, we involve, you know, parents and families and 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 all who are involved with the student to kind of help shape the conversation around, uh, you know, the student being a little bit more serious about the work. But by and large, my experience has taught me that if you put systems and structures and routines in place, students understand what the process looks like and they understand how to access those those strategies, those learning opportunities. And eventually they'll start to see that this reassessment system is really there to benefit them. That's it for today. Uh, Here's the question I'm truly interested in hearing from you about. Um, I've noticed that for a few of you, you are maybe one or two episodes behind. I see this in tweets and emails I receive and other social platforms. Again, this is a very small sampling of of you, the listeners, but, you know, so I don't want to overreact to the situation. But I am wondering if going to an every other week schedule would be better for you. Um, I'm curious, would would every other week be better? Would it be worse? Or would it make no difference at all? So if you wouldn't mind emailing me or tweeting me, send me a DM, something like that. If you have an opinion, I'd love to hear from you. I, you know, down the road, I might be forced to go to every two weeks anyway, if traveling opens up again. And if my schedule evolves to returning to what it was before COVID, then an every week pace may be really challenging for me anyway. So I'm just curious about what your perspective is on that. So if you're indifferent to that and you don't care, then no problem. Uh, But if you do have an opinion about that would make it better, that would make it easier for me to get through the episodes. I do recognize that the episodes are a little bit longer than I had anticipated they would be in the beginning. So just curious about that. So let me know what your thoughts are around an every other week podcast or an every week podcast. Um, Unless I hear differently, I'm going to stick with the every week for now. But I may have to pivot, as I said, as uh, traveling begins to open up, hopefully in 2021 at some point, (laughs) probably the end of 2021, but who knows. Uh, There is still time to register, of course, for grading from the inside out. That's a two-day training that's happening online December 10th and 11th. Last week, we had November 9th and 10th. We had a two-day training. We had 55 people registered for that. A number of school teams showed up. We had a great two days of conversation about assessment and grading. So if you're interested in that, all the information about that two-day training can be found on the solutiontree.com website. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. It's at Tom Shimmer Pod. Uh, my personal Twitter handle, of course, is at Tom Shimmer. And also, again, use the email to communicate your questions for assessment corner topics or your feedback on the question I just asked you about every other week. Uh, it's Tom Shimmer Pod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest is going to be Bill Ferreter. He's an author, he's a speaker and still a full-time classroom teacher who has been on the front lines of remote learning uh, since the beginning, since the spring. So we're going to talk about remote learning and all that that entails. You know, Bill has some very strong opinions on what to do and what he thinks not to do. So you're not going to want to miss that. Again, thanks for joining me this week. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast. I'd really appreciate you spreading the word. Again, just trying to grow the listening audience. Have a great week, everyone. 